You know, during Christmas time, it's a time to reflect on the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of our Savior who came down being fully God, but then wrapped in human flesh to be fully man. And that represents our hope because Jesus became a man so he could die and take our sins upon himself and redeem us. And so Christmas is a time to be grateful for the cross as well. Uh, I want to commend you as a church for your giving over the last few weeks, especially uh, last Sunday, responding to the missions offering during Christmas that we call Happy Birthday Jesus. We had over $10,000 given during this month. If you still would like to contribute to that, I would encourage you to excel still more and continue to give. It's a great way for us to take our focus off ourselves and towards missionaries who have needs and uh, Christmas needs and ways to bless them. And so I just commend you and it's great to be sacrificially giving as a church um, to the Lord's work. I want to also give you a little bit of a landscape on the pulpit ministry over the next couple weeks. Um, Today is a unique day. Uh, Colonel and Elder Steve Hatter is going to be in the pulpit in a few moments preaching from Philippians 2. The Lord laid that upon his heart speaking in terms of the condensation of Jesus Christ. Christ coming down and taking on the form of a servant and a slave. And so that's sort of an an initiation into our Christmas message as it builds towards this Friday where we're going to have our Christmas Eve service. Um, Christmas Eve service at 6 p.m. I would encourage you and exhort you to come. And also, I want to challenge you. Take the opportunity to invite one person, at least one person, to the Christmas Eve service. And you might say, look, I, you know, it's just enough for me to show up. Why should I do that? Well, I think every year during the Christmas holiday, the Lord sends us a sanctified softball for us to hit out of the park. In other words, you have the opportunity to ask someone to come to church, to come hear about the gospel, to come celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And that that might not be your thing to sort of get out of your comfort zone and ask someone to come, but just do it anyway. You know, go for it because it's our opportunity to be a witness for Christ and to expose ourselves that we are Christians, that we are believers. So will you do that? Take that challenge this week. Invite people to come to 6 p.m. Friday, our our Christmas Eve service. We're going to have beautiful music that's orchestral and and just beautifully choreographed together. Also, we're going to have a handbell choir that'll be a mixture of adults and children, and it'll just be a beautiful time. I'm going to give the gospel message as well as a sort of the wideness of the grace of Christmas is sort of the theme and idea of this Friday's message. And then Sunday coming, I'm going to do a part two to what Steve Hatter preaches on this morning. He's preaching on Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, on the descent of Jesus Christ, on the humility of Christ. And then next week, I'm going to bring the capstone to the message talking about the ascent and the exaltation of Christ Jesus our Lord. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That'll bring us ahead into New Year's um, coming up. And with the New Year's Eve service, not New Year's Eve, but the New Year's service, I should say, uh, I'm going to begin a message on redeeming work. The redemption of working. And what I mean by that is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 talks about working and that if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. And I want to bring perhaps a series of messages, but at least one message on the redemption of work. And this time of year, we're trying to re-up, right, on diets, on exercise. I mean, my legs are kind of hurting right now because I I jumped back into the gym a little bit too early. But anyway, all that to say, uh, yeah, we're thinking about new starts and 2 Thessalonians 3 is going to be a wrap-up and a, and a launching into the new year regarding working and working hard for the Lord. And then we're going to begin, and this was sort of part of the elder council for where we should go in our expositional study in the New Testament, and we're going to begin a series on the book of James. So I'm going to preach through the book of James, and we're going to talk about living faith, a faith that works, a faith that's real and that's alive. We want to sort of give a practical application to Scripture over the next few months as well. Um, There's no more practical book in the Bible than the book of James, I think. 
So in terms of practical application, let's apply the gospel right now by standing up and reaching out to each other and greeting each other for a few moments in the Lord. Okay, that's enough fellowshipping, everybody. Let's get moving here. Got to remember I'm a military guy, so. Well, no, good morning, precious church. It is just a privilege to see all the bright faces this morning. Blessings and warmth to you all on this final Lord's Day before we celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, some six days hence. It's really cool to see uh, some of the... uh, Families having kids return from college, you know, about this time of year. My daughter Caitlin was in the service this morning, and uh, you know, I gave her a shout out, and she was mad at me, so she's not here second service. <laughs> you know, we're not supposed to use our kids as props, but I need all the help I can get. So, um, she actually got credit for uh, for two sermons because she had to hear this at home before I gave it for service. But uh, anyway, uh, just just an offer of warmth, you know, and, and a warm sanctuary here this morning. Um, You know, it's my honor and privilege to preach today from God's Word about uh, what I'll call the doctrine of Christmas. You know, doctrine is is really defined as ideas taught as truth, as we know. And uh, the Bible claims the phenomenon of Christmas is ultimately and exclusively concerned with God coming to earth, being born as a baby, and then beginning the most significant, difficult, wonderful, miraculous, astounding journey of all time. We, We sang about it in our hymns leading up to the service. You know, this is a journey that's marked by a parabolic path. Uh, Mrs. Parker, our math teacher, would say, you know, a parabola is this shape like this. You know, it's uh, uh, and this this journey is a descent and then a bottoming out and then an ascent, uh, an upward trajectory that Jeff will be preaching on, um, you know, next Sunday. But it's a, a majestic trajectory. It's marked by the events of Christ's miraculous conception and birth, his utterly remarkable and world-changing life, his profound and controversial ministry. The Gospels share all of this. His tragic and despicable punishment and death, his triumph in one-of-a-kind resurrection, one-of-a-kind, and then final exaltation as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings to whom every tongue will confess and every knee shall bow. This is what the Bible claims is truth. Not a truth, but the truth. The only truth. And so I think that's an vitally important point in light of the many, many, many alternative truth claims out there in our culture and our world. This is the time of year, if ever, to reflect on what the Bible claims about our Lord Jesus Christ. So as Christians, you know, we more and more, we just need to be intentional. We need to make personal choices. We, we need to remember and act on the truth of this journey. There's just a whirlwind of distractions out there competing for center stage at Christmas time. And so it's vital and correct that we reaffirm what we believe with thought, meditation, prayer, confession in some cases. And we need to do this not just in a merely assenting way, but with intention to let the truth move us and change us. So we just need to guard against the multitude of distractions out there. You know, the, we, we preached through Exodus a while back in this church, and, you know, the thing that kept coming back is, you know, this, this theme of remembering how easy we forget and how much the story of Exodus is about Yahweh, the great I Am, asking the Israelites to remember, to remember. And so 
um, this morning. I, I hope that we can do that and just remember, remember what the scriptures say and what the truth claim is. I'm also uh, very humbled this morning uh, to have the pulpit, you know, because I, I, I do join uh, the pastors and elders and directors and lay leaders of this church here at 12407 Pintail in loving God's word. We, we love the scripture and, uh, you know, we want to be careful with it. We believe in his power to change lives, you know, but, but we're, we're small people, you know, we're being sanctified daily and, um, you know, we're working out our own faith with fear and trembling. So we have to determine to handle God's word with the greatest care, and that's been my prayer this week is to do just that. So in humility, I'm, I'm excited to have the floor. You know, I get to preach from this, this pulpit, which is a little bit like an F-15 cockpit. You know, I'm ready to put the burners in. So hopefully we'll take off and we'll soar this morning because the scripture soars. It is, it is just precious and beautiful. And I think when I read through uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, if it doesn't move you, um, you know, it, it's, just, it's just one of those things that it just is so powerful and so precious and so beautiful. Um, all that said, I'm not a preacher by trade. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very pleased and, and thankful that Jeff does this every week and not me. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, Randy had to go set the bar way up there last week. Thanks, Randy. Um, so it made my preparations that much tougher. So anyway, uh, it is a privilege and... And uh, without any further ado, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who promised to help believers discern truth and in this way be sanctified day by day. Lord, this time is yours today, and I pray as I would, as they say, fly low to the text, neither adding to or taking away from your perfect will and intent in our text as we study this morning. I pray, God, you would be magnified and I would be but a conduit for you to touch hearts, stir consciousness, consciences, and draw people to yourself. May the meditations of my heart and the words of my lips be pleasing and honoring to you, Lord, this message today in Jesus' and holy and perfect and precious name. Amen. Well, I've entitled the uh, message today, Christmas, the divine point of view, the divine point of view. And here's sort of where I'm coming from with this. You know, people who study the art of storytelling, um, novelists, screenwriters, would tell us about the principle of point of view, really meaning that a story is experienced and communicated through different sets of eyes. A novelist would sometimes use several points of view to develop a rich and complex yet coherent plot line. It adds richness to the story. I find it fascinating that this idea is not new. In fact, God uses point of view extremely effectively in the complete 66 books of the Bible, which we know ultimately is about the story of the salvation of man through Jesus Christ alone. God always, interestingly, is first cause of anything good, and uh, everything of man is an imitation. But regarding the birth of Christ, the plot line and meaning might be discerned from the point of view of the Old Testament prophets. Certainly a great story there, a movie potentially, or it could be approached from the standpoint of Mary and Joseph, certainly big lessons there about faith and obedience and stepping up under strain to a standard of manhood and womanhood. We did, someone did make a movie about that recently. We might look into the story from the point of view of the Magi traveling from the east, following the star, or through the eyes of the shepherds or the innkeeper. We might even study it in terms of King Herod's point of view, you know, King Herod had much to consider and a lot at stake as it turned out. So each point of view sort of offers an insight and a perspective and a lesson to be learned for sure. And again, it it just completes the richness of the story. But today we're going to look at a majestic perspective that is uh, offered by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. So if you would, open your Bibles, please, to Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. This particular passage has been called the Kenosis Hymn, or by some, the Song of Christ. And I'm going to offer to you today that the Scripture offers the divine point of view on the birth of Christ, the divine point of view. I would submit to you this is the Trinity's version of things, the Trinity's perspective, as it were. And so here we go. Starting in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... 
Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's just beautiful poetry. That's just beautiful language. Um, the English teachers here would, would just, you know, it's, it's just really good stuff. And, but it's just so packed with truth and packed with doctrine, and we're going to unpack it a little bit here this morning and try to see how it applies to us here, this precious jewel captured in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. This was written a long time ago, nearly 2,000 years so how can, we, how can we use this today to help us where we live today, where we are today, at this moment in history, at this time of year, with all the holiday baggage, with all the trouble in the world around us, troubling headlines, in the face of a multitude of distraction in snowy and dark Anchorage, Alaska in December? Well, as I'm going to try to answer this question this morning, it might help to give you some insight just into... Uh, What's going on in my heart these, le- these weeks leading into Christmas, and perhaps maybe my witness and transparency will resonate with you. And as my precious daughter Amy, who will be 11 in January, would say, it's only six more sleeps till Christmas. So here I find myself in the deepest currents of holiday season life on this final Sunday before Christmas. If you're like me, it's easy to be sort of all over the emotional map at Christmas time, isn't it? Isn't it? It's just a lot going on. You know, honesty time. Um, you don't have to raise your hand. Nobody raised their hand in the first service. So, but, but I sort of asked, that, you know, did anybody have kind of a meltdown or a hissy fit this week? <laughs> you know, kind of succumbing to the pressure of Christmas time. Um, you know, I, I kind of volunteered my own hissy. Hap- actually happened last Sunday when we, the Hatters went to buy a Christmas tree, <laughs> of all things. You know, just... Just a meltdown, and, you know, it's embarrassing, but, you know, that's, that's where we live, and, you know, we're being sanctified daily. So whether it's stressing over Christmas shopping or it's getting reacquainted with family flown in from faraway places, it's party planning, it's suffering loss or regret or loneliness. You know, I lost my dad this past year, and, you know, I grieve for him daily. Christmas is tough. It's tough. You know, or it's remembering Christmas's past before, you know, bad health news of a loved one or, or maybe you personally, you know, or it's, it's just uncertainty in, in circumstances, maybe economic. Christmas kind of tends to get us to focus and, and, and we just, we kind of, you know, as my wife, as I tell my wife, you think things, I think things. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's tough and, and we tend to focus on ourselves, you know, and, and even precious Amy, you know, with plain old innocent childlike joy of the season, she's counting the sleeps until Christmas. <laughs> so our emotions at Christmas time do run high, and uh, I'm no exception. You know, there's also just a lot going on. We're busy, busy, busy at Christmas time. You know, we're spending quality time with family and friends. We're going to open houses. You know, we're going to cookie exchanges, which I personally need to stay about as far away from as you can get. Uh, you know, but we do tend to reflect, you know, kind of more seriously in our personal time, you know, we just, we tend to reflect deeply. You know, and unfortunately, some of the busyness and pace isn't so great. It gets back to the competing truth claims out there. You know, a lot of what goes on this time of year is just tragic, pathetic, unedifying distraction would pull us away from truth. So I guess I would offer you, you know, kind of as a lead into the unpacking the scripture, if we're honest, we want our Christmas to mean everything. We want Christmas to mean everything, you know, but we find ourselves drifting somewhere between elation and disappointment. You know, I, I love the Lord. I, I love my faith. Uh, I want Christmas to mean everything, and yet I'm sort of struggling with all, all these emotions, and sometimes I'm hard-pressed to even understand the smorgasbord of feelings that I, I sense, and much less sort of explain it to others. And I think that's why 
God, you know, put on my heart. Jeff asked me to preach a couple weeks ago, and I think, you know, I, I was sort of thinking a lot of different things. And I just came back to Philippians 2 in and, and this particular passage, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's because, you know, I needed it. <laughs> you know, when you preach, you kind of get ministered to, and so I think I needed it. You know, John MacArthur from Grace Community Church in Southern California sort of describes the phenomenon of the Christmas holiday season chaos and confusion in this way, and I'm quoting, Year after year, I'm struck by the paradoxes of Christmas, the strange juxtaposition of Christianity and a kind of carnival mentality. The humility and poverty of the stable confused with wealth and indulgence of selfishness and gift-giving. The quietness of Bethlehem with the din and of the shopping mall, the seriousness of the incarnation with the silliness of the party spirit and party attitude, the blinking colored lights juxtaposed with the star of heaven. You know, he goes on to argue that a lot of what is out there is, you know, the sources, the enemy of men's souls at work in the confusion. It's a sobering thought, certainly. But, but I want to tell you, I'm not an Ebenezer Scrooge type either. You know, I'm, I'm not down on Christmas I love the lights, you know. Um, I live on the same street as Rich and Wanda Klein, so, you know, I love the lights. I have some of my own. Not like, not like Rich's, but I have lights. And, uh, you know, I, I just love the precious anticipation of Christmas Eve. You know, I, I love the joy of Christmas morning. I love the food and the fellowship, and I adore the church Christmas Eve service coming up. The singing of the beloved carols, some of which we did this morning. You know, just drinking in all the warm symbols of Christmas, you know, a season literally celebrated for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Traditions are good things, you know, but I agree with John MacArthur in a sense that there is clear and present danger in simply going there with all the distraction. You know, we need to kind of come back to earth. There's peril in lifting tradition above truth. Peril in lifting tradition above truth. There is risk in forgetting, even for but a moment, the reason for the season. The scripture talks about the reason for the season. It gets us where we need to be, the mindset we need to be in, thanks to the Apostle Paul. So it's just sort of typical and tragic, you know, that me personally, uh, I'd like to personalize this because, you know, this, this scripture did speak to me, you know, that I can come here on Christmas Eve, you know, sort of take in all the warmth. I can listen to Jeff and you know, absorb the, the sermon and the Holy Spirit will minister to me, you know, but it doesn't take long for me to go out and <laughs> sort of forget what I heard and I'm sort of distracted again and uh, disappointed perhaps and maybe like the Christmas tree fiasco behaving like a uh, selfish, confused fool. So why do I do this? Why do we do this? You know, why, why do we as Christians, you know, become anxious and stressed out and confused and troubled When God's word is ever-present, never changing, and freely offering salvation, relief, peace, and invitation to fellowship with the living God. Well, for me, again, making it personal, I think it's because I have not yet in my walk, in my walk of being sanctified, fully grasped the humility of Christ. I have not yet fully grasped the humility of Christ. So as we kind of go deeper this morning, I'd like to ask you to ask yourself, you know, where are you on, on this scale? Where are we as a corporate church in terms of really fully understanding the humility of Christ that is offered to us in Philippians? <clears throat> Pastor R. Kent Hughes offers an insight into this idea by way of the example of the disciples, disciples who walked with Jesus, we know from the Gospels. Remember the little controversy that sprung up when the apostles James and John attempted to get Jesus to promise them, you know, sort of special privileges, special privileged thrones in the kingdom. The story of, of this ugly and competitive spirit is chronicled in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verse 24 offers, when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. We're talking disciples walking with Jesus. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. You can just kind of imagine the tempers flaring, you know, sort of uh, people bowing up, harsh words, you know, fists, maybe bald, angry gestures. There's frustration there. There's conflict, selfishness, certainly. Jesus calls them together and admonishes them in verses 25 to 28. And he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their great ones exercise authority over them, it shall not be so among you. But whosoever would be great among you must also be a servant. And whosoever would be first among you must also must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, as a military guy, uh, that sure sounds like a direct knock-it-off type comment, if I've heard one. Our Lord is being direct with the disciples. And yet we all know that hearing the truth and allowing it to change us are not the same thing, are they? Even when we're devoted to Christ. Let me say that one again. Yet we all know that hearing the truth and allowing it to change us are not the same thing, even when we're devoted to Christ. Well, the story keeps going. Several days later, when the apostles arrived in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they were still going at it. Peter and John had secured a room for the Passover, as Jesus had directed them to do. But they failed to make arrangements for foot washing. You know, as the apostles wandered in, no one would condescend to perform the humble task. Jesus' teaching from only a few days prior, you know, as direct as it was, don't do this, let it not be so, it had little staying power with these guys. No one would volunteer for the lowly task. No one would humble themselves. No one would humble themselves. Well, what happens next is, is really nothing less than astonishing. The Gospel of John recounts what happened behind closed doors. Jesus is being private with his disciples. This is a lesson for them, an important lesson, because they go off and you know, have to demonstrate humility uh, after the Lord departs, after the resurrection. They've got a big mission ahead of them. But as the disciples shamefully recline at the table with dirty feet, there's strain and tension thickly present over what is an obnoxious and obvious breach of custom. Well, Jesus stands apart from the disciples and begins to remove his outer garment. You can just sort of imagine they're going, whoa, what are you doing, you know? Next, he takes a towel and wraps it around his body. He then pours water into a basin and proceeds to slowly move around the circle of men, washing each disciple's feet and wiping them with a towel with which he is wrapped. Pastor Hughes puts this voluntary act of humility in this way. It was a breathtaking deed. Again, just imagine the tension in the room, and, and, and they're just sort of going, whoa, wait, don't, don't. <laughs> and he proceeds to voluntarily take the form of a humble servant. His Jewish custom and law taught that no Hebrew, even a slave, could be commanded to wash feet. Yet Jesus did it in the most humble way possible, clothed in the servant's towel. In the breathless silence of that upper room, the apostles heard the trickle of water as it was poured, the friction of the towel as their feet were being wiped off, the sound of the master breathing as he moved from one to another. The incarnate Son of God himself had dressed like a servant and washed the feet of prideful, arrogant creatures. And then Jesus said to them, and I'm quoting from John 13, 14 to 16, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. With this sort of... uh, Attention getting truly, truly, you know, always kind of bright, flashing, this is important, lights, marker, signpost, and scripture. Jesus is hooking them with an ancient logic, and here it is. If it is true for the greater, then it must be true for the lesser. If it is true for the greater, then it must be true for the lesser. So let's fast forward now to Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. Here Paul is using the same logic. If it's true for the master, it must be true for the lesser. After encouraging the Philippians to pull together and look out for one another in verses 2 to 4, and I'll read what Paul says as an introduction to verses 5 through 11, the kenosis hymn. 
I'm quoting from Scripture again, verses 2 to 4. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he offers them the standard. He sets the bar for the church at Philippi. He gives them the expected standard of attitude and behavior by saying, what follows is true for the master, so let it be true for you. He says, in effect, imitate this attitude. Imitate this attitude, church. Look at verse 5. Have this mind, Paul says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's saying to them, because you're believers, by the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, under the new covenant in Christ, you can do this. You can do this. How often do we sort of go, wow, you know, that's what Jeff preached on, man, that's just like way, I, you know, I can sort of think about it, but I can't do it. Paul is saying, no, you can do this. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit because you're believers in Christ under the new covenant. So what is the, what is the this? What is the this we're talking about? What is the attitude and behavior we're supposed to imitate? What, what is the example that Jesus gave us? Well, verses 6 through 9, I think some of which is on the screen, uh, these verses are usually referred to by scholars as the condescension of Christ, not the condensation of Christ. I think that's what you said, Jeff, sorry. (laughs) The the condescension of Christ, the condescension, which is, you know, it's a a coming down, it's it's a condescending And these verses, perhaps more poignantly than any other scripture, represent God's point of view on the incarnation of Christ. The living God literally taking on the form of men for a time. As I was studying this past week, I kept thinking about the Normandy invasion in World War II, sort of being a military historian kind of guy. You know, this is when thousands upon thousands of brave men stormed into enemy territory and took back just enough of France to establish a foothold, and this foothold would eventually lead to the end of the Nazi reign of terror in Europe. The weight of the world seemed to be on the, on the shoulders of these brave liberators, and, and we quite rightly honor them with tears and joy to this day. It was a magnificent feat. It was a tremendous example of sacrifice, of laying down one's life for another, you know, but Normandy, though similar, it's small, and, and it's a mere historical footnote in light of what was going on in heaven when our Lord pondered incarnation, when he pondered leaving his throne, leaving the glory of heaven to take on the humble form of a slave in incarnation. This act of incarnation, Christ taking on the form and likeness of men, he, Christ, a co-equal in the Trinity, is the truth claim of the Bible, voluntarily departing heaven on this greatest journey. It's a bit of a, you know, uh, invasion in enemy territory, if you like, if you're like me. You know, but was, what, what was different here and what was utter and is utterly shocking is, is this act is a journey of utter humility from the onset. It is marked by humility. It is the essence of humility. It is the definition of humility. It is the standard of humility. You know, Normandy was certainly marked by sacrifice and courage, but the commanding general did not parachute into Auschwitz and trade places with a Jew going to the furnace. He did not take the place of the lowliest prisoner for the duration of the war. So, I mean, there's, a, there's, there's just a different standard here, and that's what I'm trying to get across. Think about this. Christ is God, giving up his privileges, giving himself away, yet remaining God. One writer put it this way, he is God at once putting on a king's robe and then taking it off and taking beggar's rags. He is God the judge rising from the bench and going to the gallows as a criminal. He is God impoverishing himself, exposing himself to evil's spite, never sparing himself until he makes it all the way to the cross. 
Starting in verse 6, the text offers that Christ, and I'm reading again, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Just, there's just two incredible claims in this short verse. The first is that Jesus Christ is God. The second is that he was preparing voluntarily to give up certain aspects of his rightful sovereign position for a time, for a purpose. So let's look at point one. Jesus Christ is God. The text gives a view of Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state. He is preeminent. Preeminent. There is no mistaking what Paul is saying. That Christ, before he descended to earth to, to be born, was in, in, in the form of a human baby, his incarnation. He was in the form of God and was God's equal. Think about that for a second. I mean, we... We study scripture, we, we all are familiar with the attributes of God. We've been doing a study on the attributes of God in our 3D men's group, and there's a bunch of them. There's communicable attributes, which are the ones we resonate with, which is forgiveness and love and connection, forbearance, grace. And then there's the incommunicable attributes of God, which are his omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, Righteousness, holiness. He is creator, redeemer, truth, light, life. You get the picture. All of what we know about God is Christ. Christ is God. The text is clear on this truth claim about his divinity. There's just no mistaking it. So we're talking about the great I am of Exodus. Yahweh, Christ, the Trinity. These truth claims do matter folks. They, they do matter. And there are competing faiths and competing doctrines out there that would say, okay, well, you know, whatever, that's what Christians say. You know, but when you start to think about, okay, can, can two things be true at the same time? Can Christ be God, but then sort of not? And, and the competing faiths out there would veer sharply from this claim in this scripture. We need to think about that. We need to Meditate on that. We need to decide where we're going to land on this one. The use of the Greek word morphe means the text is claiming Christ possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God. The additional word isos in the Greek translate Christ's being God's equal. Being God's equal. Christ is God and equal to the other members of the Trinity and the Godhead. Hebrews 1.3 tells us, he is the radiance, the radiance of the glory of God and the Im- exact imprint of his nature. Well, let's look at point two. He was willing to voluntarily give up a cert- certain aspects of his rightful sovereign position for a time, for a purpose. And that purpose being salvation of sinners, you and me, each of us. This is transcendent, eternal humility, folks. Though God, Jesus Christ, existed in the splendorous form of God, the same Shekinah glory that flattened the prophet Isaiah in the book of Isaiah. Remember when Isaiah gets to see just a little bit of the Shekinah glory? Boom. Flat on his face. I am a man of unclean lips. And it also tells us in Scripture that it literally would kill a human who would look upon it directly. The same glory. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped. The idea is that Jesus did not hold on to his equality with God as something to use for his own advantage. He voluntarily did this for us. It was his voluntary humility. Look at verses 3 and 4, if you would, for a second. Just go back. You know, this is Paul. This is an admonishment and an encouragement to Christians, to us who would read it. To me, personally, to Steve Hatter, this week after the Christmas tree meltdown, it's encouragement to me, you know, and people who vie as rivals as they seek their own interests. As we sit on the throne of our lives, how unlike such people was the pre-incarnate Christ? Pastor Hughes puts it again this way, rather than viewing his equality with God as something to keep, he saw it as qualifying him qualifying him for his humble descent to save his people. 
Christ's eternal humility in heaven is a thing of astonishing wonder. Well, verse 7 then sees conversion of the heart humility of Christ to action. It's the decision at Normandy to go. It's the, we're a go. We're taking the beach. We see this humility in the physical change marked by the mystery of incarnation. Here's where it's important to fly low to the text, to read what it says and trust in that. It's a mystery, the mystery of incarnation. God is, Jesus is God and man, fully both. Christ made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And here the word form in terms of his taking the form of a servant has the same sense as used back in verse 6. Form in verse 6 signifies both the appearance and being of God. So when Christ took on the form of a servant in verse 7, some translations would say the form of a slave, would use the term slave. He adopted the appearance and being of a slave. This was voluntary. This was a taking on. It was an emptying act. This taking, as in the taking the form, was an emptying act as Jesus so dramatically demonstrated when he stripped in the upper room and washed the disciples' feet. This was something he did. He initiated. He humbled himself. He emptied himself to make a point, to accomplish a mission. Jesus Christ did not exchange the form of God for the form of a slave. Listen. This is important. Rather, he manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. That one's probably worth a repeat. Jesus Christ did not exchange the form of God for the form of a slave. Rather, he voluntarily manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. Well, verse 8 then sort of completes the downward segment of the journey. The parabola, the bottom of the parabola, hitting bottom literally at the cross. And again from Scripture, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we see the ultimate selfless posture. Think of the descriptions of the path to the cross given in the Gospels. Jesus prays in the garden, literally sweating blood in anticipation of the cross that is coming on him. You know, in terms of what Jesus knew awaited him, humanity had not, and it can be argued, has not yet still created a more degrading or loathsome or painful, excruciating experience as the cross. A slave in those times was the only person that you could sacrifice. You certainly couldn't sacrifice couldn't put a Roman citizen on the cross. And polite Roman society considered the mention, the mere mention of the cross as an obscenity. But it had to be so. Jesus knows that on that cross, and that cross alone, he will bear the weight of all the sins of all the people who ever believed throughout all of human history. It had to be the cross. Jesus Christ is going to feel the wrath of God, the likes of which we could never comprehend. So the Normandy invasion, as magnificent as it is, the idea of men waiting in a landing craft to hit the beach at Omaha Beach, where most of them didn't make it across the sand to the first sand dune. I mean, we just, we just that resonates with us. You know, we, we, we appreciate that. We're... Saddened, but also elated by that, that someone would do that for someone else. But here we have Christ going to the cross, to the cross. John Calvin captured such such expression of humble obedience in this way, and I'm quoting, For by dying in this way, he was not only covered with ignominy in the sight of men, but accursed in the sight of God. It had to be the cross. It assuredly is impossible to explain it in words suitable to its greatness. The humblest man who ever lived is Christ himself, the God-man. No one humbled him. He humbled himself. And the Apostle Paul tells us this is the standard we must strive for. If it is true for the Master, so let it be true for you. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And you can do this. You can do this. So verses 9 through 11, the, the, uh, what Jeff is going to concentrate on, on on Sunday after Christmas, captures the swinging back in the rising part of the parabola, captures the ascent back to glory. It's the magnificent ascension on the up, upward leg. I will give you a little teaser, though, in hopes that maybe you'll read ahead and Meditate on the greatness of this scripture, the fullness of it, the beauty of it. A soaring exaltation of Christ follows the finished work on the cross. Divine justice is satisfied. The Trinity is reunited. One commentator described it as the super exaltation of Christ. And he offers this description, what I thought was pretty cool. So bear with me as I read it. So the down, down, down of Christ's humiliation is followed by his soaring exaltation. To get the feel of this picture, to get the feel of this, picture the gears of a catapult being ratcheted down ever tighter with the movements of his self-humiliation so that the final groaning click of the gears creates an explosive tension. And then the gear is tripped, launching indescribable exaltation. Jesus Christ's greatest journey of descent to humiliation is our salvation. It's a truth claim. It's the truth claim. It's our example. It's our gift. It's our hope. It is, in fact, our only hope. In utter contrast, consider the thoughts of Lucifer found in Isaiah 14. How unlike our Lord is this heart attitude. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. How unlike our Lord is that heart attitude. How brilliant is our Lord's humility. How unspeakable is our Lord's humility. As you see, I think, and bringing it back to this week, and my Christmas tree meltdown, and where you may be, I think in order to keep Christmas in a right perspective, we need to just get off of ourselves. We need to cede sovereignty of our little lives by humbling ourselves, by taking the example of our Lord, humbling ourselves, and looking up and focusing on Christ. We need to see ourselves as broken and contrite under the weight of his story, not our story, his story, in such a way as to allow a divine point of view to form the grid through which we view all else. And I literally mean all else. There is no detail so small in our lives that we shouldn't view him through the majesty of Christ and the truth of what he has done for us. I think when we do this, when I do this, it spoke to me, when I do this, it just sort of makes me feel small. It makes me feel like the disciples probably felt when Jesus washed their feet. You just sort of go, wow, okay. <laughs> Not going to go there. And, and I think it, it's helpful to sort of put it that way. So when we view our lives through the grid of Christ's greatness, an unimpeachable example, indeed things come into perfect focus. The majesty of Christ blots out everything else. It blots out the petty temptations to self. And he, our Lord, the most worthy, is magnified. He's magnified. And he's magnified to our great and unexpected blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this Sunday before Christmas. Thank you for the scripture uh, inspired words from you through the Apostle Paul and the book of Philippians. Thank you for the promise of salvation. Thank you for what we have to look forward to, Lord, as we walk with you and grow in grace and be sanctified daily. I pray, God, that this message would resonate in a beautiful way to those that would hear it today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, amen. Thank you for all of your preparation that went into your study on Philippians 2. You could tell that 
Um, it had impacted your life deeply, the text, and what a masterful text to just plumb the depths of Philippians 2. It's uh, one that sort of in, it's, it's, it's incomparably beautiful in terms of Christ and his condescension, yes, um, his humility. And uh, I, I tell you, Philippians 2, what stood out to me uh, more than anything else as you look through Philippians 2, and I would encourage you to meditate on this text today through this week because I am going to do a part two um, to what Steve laid the groundwork for and uh, so masterfully handled. But what stood out to me is how much the mind is um, sort of put at front and center stage in this text. If you look in Philippians 2, uh, verse 2, it says, Being of the same mind in full accord and of one mind, and then it talks about making a mental decision to esteem others higher than yourself. Verse 5, have this mind which is, uh, which is among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then it speaks of Christ making that mental decision to take on the form of a servant. You know, being humble is an attitude, and that stood out to me as our application. It is a choice that we can make as spirit-filled believers to humble ourselves. And we need to heed this text and, and live by this text during the Christmas season and during all of our Christian lives. And especially as we look to the new year, let's try to be more humble people by the grace of God. Well, let's stand for our final dismissal. And I just want to remind you of a couple things. Again, Friday, we have our Christmas Eve service. My challenge still stands. Invite people. You want to talk about esteeming others higher than yourself? Go to someone and make a decision to invite them. Get out of your comfort zone and say, hey, would you come with me to the Christmas Eve service? Love to have you, host you, and you're going to hear beautiful music and then also the gospel as well. And then on Sunday, which is the day after Christmas, we will have one service at 1045. So if you're planning to come for a service at 9 a.m., come for 1045. We will have um, Sunday school still, but 1045 is our one service for Sunday. Is that correct? Are we having Sunday school, or did I just... Thank you. Yes, everything at 1045. Um, The Spirit just intervened in that moment, but 1045... Come for the one Christmas service, and it's this Sunday. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for this wonderful service where we can exalt your name. We are humbled um, by your text and by Jesus Christ's example. Lord, I pray that we could walk by the power of the Holy Spirit now, applying the truth, aiming our minds to esteem others more, as more highly and precious than we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.